This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I try to stay very close to the title of the conference, the Simplicity, Complexity, and Emergence. Okay, And we are working with Fruitfly, and you'll see a wee little bit of my research. But one way I can coach our work is that we use a very simple organism to study very complex behavior and development of, for example, the nervous system. And from that emerges understanding of human development because all of the mechanisms and stuff are very, very, very similar, if not completely conserved. Okay, so there is value to it. It also saved me from uh, having to sacrifice too many animals, uh, well, other animals <laughs> in life, okay? And, and many of the studies that I was interested in the early stages, uh, truthfully, uh, were directed towards using aborted, aborted tissue, and I had no interest at all in that kind of direction. So the fruit flies became a very nice compromise. So, and, and because of a couple of comments, I, I gotta have a subtitle where I want to try to show you the cell and the beauty of emergence. Okay, so what the cell is and give it to you. Jessica gave a great intro to all of the macromolecules, building blocks we even use at the same time. And so when I, I'm going to skip a couple of them now because she did too good a job to bother, okay, wasting any more time. But if I talk about it, I'm going to talk about it from how the cell thinks about this stuff, okay. And so I was told by my son to, to give an outline. I never use an outline, so I'll try one. Okay, I'm going to give you a little intro of the cell. And then I'm taking simplicity to complexity and then trying to demonstrate using scientific articles how come the cell is an emergent property. And along the way, for us, the simplicity is the macromolecules and the polymers that exist in the cell. Okay, so someone told me anything greater than 20 carbons, they ignore. Cell biologists ignore anything condensed matter-wise. Anything lower than an atom and a molecule, I have absolutely no interest in, nor any understanding, least of all after yesterday's demonstration to how little I know, okay? And then I'm also going to try to show you that the, some of the buzzwords is that simplicity is molecular biology. Complexity is the real cell biology, putting it in a cell, in an organism, looking at signaling and, and things like that. And the cell then, you kind of understand the emergent properties of cells if you want to call it cell physiology or just physiology. And as we get to emergence, because of Father Mario's uh, Wikipedia definition thing that I swallowed a bottle of Tylenol to understand, thanks, okay, <laughs> that I actually um, tried to understand that at least downward causation has to be uh, uh, introduced and, and dealt with. And then there's a concept of self-regulation or self-organization. And then I'll leave you with something biological rel relativity and to bring the philosophers back in, leave you with a question for yourselves to do, okay? Whoops. So remember the biology spans a huge amount, and I'm only showing you the kind of the biology aspects that I've had exposure to. Uh, skip the atom and the molecules, okay? But macromolecules for sure, organelles, and the cell. And so the cell is indeed the focal point for where I'm going to be looking. And then cells, of course, make tissues, organs, and get to the organism, okay? And so that's what we're going to look at. And to me, whenever I look at any of these, it's really a sliding scale of simplicity, complexity, and emergence, depending on 
where you're defining simplicity and stuff. Okay, and, I, and I'll show you that as I go. Just to make sure we kind of all have a little history of a cell way back in 65, 16, 65, I should add this, the 16 there, okay. Um, Robert Hooke used one of the very early microscopes to see a cell, and I couldn't resist it. He called it a cell because of the rooms that they had in the monasteries. Okay, guys, I'm hoping your room was a little better than that, but anyway, <laughs> okay. In 1839, they added three fundamental processes that all organisms are made of cells, and the cells are the basic units of life, okay? And that hasn't changed. It's still really very much true, okay? And real, okay? And then uh, 1858, they added that cells come from pre-existing cells. So one big question is when the first chap actually show up, but we won't worry about that, okay? And then as modern theory came, and certainly the DNA focused, they added three more. The DNA has passed between cells during cell division, the cells of all organisms within a similar species are mostly the same. Certainly in many of the processes, I'm sure, that occur in all of the cells, even across species, the difference is, is, is in the 10% is different, okay? But though structurally and chemically, they're very similar, and that energy flow occurs in a cell. And that, that makes sense, right? Because we, we have to have that. Here, I'll, I, I'll remind you that at least for all philosophers and stuff, this diagram in the bottom, uh, left corner, right? That's a high school version. So you kind of know this little cartoon of a cell with some bunch of stuff inside. I prefer a slightly more complex uh, cartoon, okay? Looking at it with a little bit more detail and then showed some real pictures from cells uh, that were at, photographed while they were live, okay? And so we have the center, the, 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 the nucleus, the, the DNA information, okay? That's the blue in the pictures. The green here is the endoplasmic reticulum, or the ER. It's shown, it's a tubules of membranes and organelles, okay? And it's related to the Golgi in red in the cartoon. I'm losing my uh, arrow, here we are. The red in the cartoon. And you see the GFP ER over here, that the endoplasmic reticulum is, is huge, really. It spans all over the cell. And likewise, the Golgi, well, not all over the cell, is a lot more than just the, the red cartoon. Okay, and one of the reasons that I really like this is another critical element in the cell is the cytoskeleton. Okay, this is kind of the bone and the muscles put together for the cell. They interchange, they're not one or, okay. And so the, the, the microtubules are shown here as a cartoon. You'll see it again a couple more times. And what we're focused here on is, is we have these focal adhesions with actin and you can see that there's a number of them in a live cell, with each one of these yellow dots being an adhesion point and the green stress fibers, the actins. This involved in the, shells, the cell's shape and strength and things like that. And I can't not show you the third criterion that cells come from pre-existing. I won't quiz you on mitosis because I know you have to Study that again before you remember all the steps, okay? But in blue is the DNA, and in green is the microtubules. And so the DNA will ha has replicated earlier. It's now condensing. It gets lined up near the, oh, near the middle part of the um, equator of the cell. The microtubules are actually these, these fibers coming in and pulling on the DNA, pulling and pushing. It's high tense activity, okay, moving things around. They separate to the different poles, and then we have an actin and myosin base squeezing like a purse. You know, those, those, the bags that we got where you, you pull the string and the purse is closed? 
that's happening to separate the two cells in the end. And that's about all of division I'm going to get. For this talk, as I try to think about the simplicity and complexity and how, how to relate that, you're just going to yeah, give me, and I'll try to prove as I go, that the cell is an emergent property. So this big outer circle that I'm showing you here. And the cell consists of a whole series of functional modules. That's the complexity because the complexity is there because each module has a whole bunch of simple polymers and macromolecules. Note that they're polymers and macromolecules already, okay, that, that are making this function happen. So the mitochondria could be a module and all the stuff that the mitochondria does to make energy. The cytoskeleton, the plasma membrane. I did not try to draw this uh, so poorly. These circles are overlapping because what makes the emergent cell is that these modules all crosstalk with each other and regulate each other so that the cell becomes a self-regulated entity. Okay, so that's a conception that I, I want to leave with you and I'll change that model near the end. So let's look at simplicity, molecular biology. Some people in nowadays kind of frown upon it. It's a reductionist approach, but it was marvelously valuable because we, as, as Jessica really showed with a lot of, we know a lot about the individual building blocks. And you have to start knowing some really basic stuff before you can start detecting patterns and how things work. And so it was wonderful for getting us that information. Principles of folding, the physics, the structure function that Jessica alluded to is intimately related. So the way it folds gives you the enzymatic function, the way they will interact with each other, the way the cell will work. And so by studying the individual components, we saw that. And, and, and Jessica did most. So I'm, I'm only going to focus it on a couple from a cell's point of view. So she mentioned lipids. And one single biochemical phenomena called amphipathic or amphipathicity is primarily driving the formation of this cell membrane. And you need a membrane to make a cell. And that is amphipathic means that these phospholipids have a head group that love water, drown me in water every day of the week. And they have those fatty acid oily chains that have no interest in water. And water has no interest in them and would have to form a cage around them. So because the membrane is, can be formed readily with very little energy, because make a bunch of phospholipids and they will immediately make this phospholipid bilayer. Where the head groups talk to the water and the oily chains are all happy together. Like dissolves like from way back high school chemistry, basically. And you can even think about it from the edges so that if you have these edges, they're right away going to form a ball with water inside and water outside. And somewhere along the way, it created it such that the inside of the cell has a lot of potassium and the outside cell has a lot of sodium, okay? Which is important to its function, but just a detail. This is a boundary. And you need more than a boundary in a cell to be functional alive. And so the cell solution is, well, just stick a bunch of proteins in here. They're the workhorse of the cell, and they'll do the stuff that the cell needs. So that's one. I'm going to skip carbohydrates. Nucleic acids, okay, we talked about. Jessica has all that, okay? From a cell's point of view, this double-stranded DNA helix has that built-in, we call it five prime to three prime polarity, and they are anti-parallel double-stranded. This structure dictates how all of the enzymes have to work in the cell to replicate the DNA. The enzymes evolve so they'll do things in five prime to three prime directions. 
we have decided that genes are read in a five prime to three prime direction such that when the RNA, and this is a coding RNA, I'm not gonna worry about the non-coding stuff, okay? It is then translated into protein. And again, by looking at three nucleotides by base pairing. So base pairing is a fundamental process of how DNA gets used in a cell, not just its structure. Proteins, I have an older cell biology version of protein data bank proteins. Jessica actually mentioned this, so I'll just say it in this sense, that proteins also have polarity. There's an amino terminal and a C terminal because of each individual. And folding is really, in, in, in a cell biologist's view, it's because you stick this covalent peptide bond between the two subunits. And now the sub, and I should do it this way, and now the subunits are forced to deal with these side chains. So the chemistry, the van der Waal forces, the non-covalent electrostatic interactions, they're all wiggling. I look at it as you're in the middle seat of a plane and you're playing the elbow game, right? Trying to figure out, that's what these side chains are doing left, right, and center as they find the lowest energy sort and fold. And so they'll do the secondary stuff. Somebody's clearly had too many elbow games in a plane, okay? <laughs> You get the three-dimensional structure by the same basic principles. And then you have the quaternary. I, I picked on um, hemoglobin here. Hemoglobin, red blood cells, right? Carry your oxygen. The protein folds in such a way that the red heme is situated just exactly right for the affinity for oxygen and carrying it and releasing it, right? You need it released too. And a trick nature uses when you're thinking about evolution is Sort of a, 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 a sibling of the beta subunit that we call gamma is created in, in the embryo, in the baby. And the gamma subunit will go with alpha, will form the former in the baby, but the affinity for hemoglobin, the, the, of the heme group for oxygen is slightly higher in the baby. And I'm like, oh, this is really cool because the baby gets her oxygen from mama who's carrying it on an alpha-beta, so you need just a little bit more affinity so the baby can have its oxygen and breathe and live and be happy, okay? So that's the kind of tricks the way we look at nature. And I have to show a little bit of calmodulin because an emergent property of calmodulin is my PhD degree, so I have to kind of have that for a second. But I'll use it to demonstrate the idea that its primary amino acid structure dictated its folding into these alpha helices and they form an EF hand, so a strand, that has amino acids that will coordinate the binding of calcium, which is a very important second messenger in a cell, okay? And to show basics, I, I highlighted all of the hydrophobic, the, the amino acid side chains that don't like water get buried in the middle of the protein. So very little energy is needed to do that, right? They're just happier in there. Put the electrostatic amino acids on the outside, they're happy dealing with water, and in red, you see down here that the red side chains, which are negative, are coming in to talk to the 2-plus calcium ion and coordinate its binding. And so that's the kind of little tricks that nature uses to make it work. And the same basic principle works that when calmodulin has calcium in it, it can bind to a portion of a target enzyme by basically giving the blue peptide as a part of the target enzyme, give the target enzyme a hug, the enzyme is forced to deal with this extra hug, if you will, okay, and opens up and works. Let's, we'll leave it at that. Be nice to me, Jessica. I know I'm cutting a lot of biochemical corners. <laughs> okay, so we have the simplicity of these, and I'm ignoring carbohydrates, okay? 
Complexity comes when you study cell biology. You stick this thing even in a culture, this live cell, but certainly in organisms. How are these different things working together? That's what really complexity is all about. It, you have to remember that the cell is a bag of chemicals working on reactions, and it's really stochastic, random reactions. The cell has tricks to stack the deck in favor of a certain reaction, but it's still ultimately a random reaction. Okay? And, so, and then by studying in cells, we learn the dynamic nature of these modules. How do you harness energy? How do you store and utilize the information? Mitosis. Okay? RNA and protein machines like the ribosome, signaling transduction mechanisms. I have to mention them later on, but we won't touch them very hard. Cytoskeleton and cell interactions as examples. And I'm going to show you in a video in a second, but to prep you for this video, the cytoskeleton, I said, is, is like the muscle and the bones of a cell. And microtubules are, are very common. They, they pull those, uh, those chromosomes apart. They consist of a dimer that stack in these columns, and then 13 of these columns loop, self-loop together to form a hollow tube. You'll see sequences in the video in a second. Versus actin is a helix of actin monomers coming together, okay? And this is kind of really is the muscle of the cell because molecule, muscle, motor molecules like myosin work on actin and change the shape of the cell. In fact, the actin that's in your skeletal muscle that's allowing me to talk with my hands, okay, is this same sort of actin in our other cells in smaller amounts. And then there are intermediate filaments. Think guide ropes on a tent. They're giving the tensile strength to the cell, but we won't look too hard. So I'm about to turn it on. There is a, a famous movie now. It's, it's over 10 years old. It's set to actually some nice music, but I turned the music off so I can talk. I don't know if that's better or worse, but that's what you're going to get. Okay. And it's looking at you to see the dynamic nature of the inside of the cell. So the blue thing you're seeing here is a white blood cell, a leukocyte, the end, and going through a capillary arteriole. Okay, so that's the little red things are your red blood cells. And you probably had an infection somewhere. It's sending signals to want that leukocyte to leave the blood vessel and attack. And so it shows you this as a sequence. And, si whoops. and since I tend to turn it off before I get the, the, the who did all that work, I, I show it here so we're all on, online. Um, they also have many other movies. So here's the blood flow is going, the blue cells starting to react. Okay. Now you're going to see the interaction of two outside of the cells. Protein molecules that are embedded in the membrane are talking to each other. Extracellular matrix is all that white. Here's the plasma membrane. It's a liquid plasma membrane, right? It's not solid. Different proteins will interact. Inside the plasma membrane, inside the cell, is a spectrum, a network, a fish network of other proteins to give it some stability. So you see that better as it zooms out on you, corralling things, thinking, you know, keeping structure. These are the actins, three-dimensional structures tied together with all sorts of other different proteins. An actin can self-polymerize, as you see here, to make that double helical filament and in many different shapes and forms. Okay? But sometimes you need to cut the actin, and so they have this severin protein, wraps around, cuts it, and now it will depolymerize. This is the microtubule, a gorgeous sequence of how it will polymerize, but then in a certain condition, dynamic instability in it massively. 
Beautiful scene of the musico. This is a kinesin motor molecule marching over the microtubules, carrying a vesicle with it all over the cell. Okay? And score. Okay, all microtubules origin originate from there, radiate all over the cell to help move. Those are pores of a nucleus with an mRNA coming out for translation. Ribosome comes in, finds the start site, assemble, and starts making protein that are coming out. Many times, sometimes the protein needs to have a chaperone to bring it to the mitochondria so that it can go into a very specific organelle. Okay. Other times the ribosome will finish translation on the endoplasmic reticulum and that protein that you just saw finishing would end up outside of the cell going through these vesicles, okay, sometimes marching along with the kinesins, okay, to the Golgi. So the Golgi vesicles will come in from the bottom, go through these different lamellae, being sorted and brought to the surface for exocytosis, release of Paul. And any proteins that were in the membrane are now left in the membrane itself. So now, putting it back together in this video to this beginning of this blue cell, we have a lipid raft of receptors getting ready. They see the extracellular matrix of the endothelial. They're binding. It forces this white blood cell to stop rolling, change its shape into a thin, flat sheet, squeeze through these endothelial cells that make up the vessel, and go and attack the buggy boo that's infecting us. Okay, so that's the video. Okay, so hopefully that gives you some idea of the dynamic nature of the cell and what I think are actually marvelously beautiful processes of how a cell works. Okay, it should certainly have shown you some complexity of things in a, in a, in a real cell as well, even though it's all virtual. Okay. One module that it didn't show that's kind of important is signal transduction pathways. Don't worry, you don't have to know any of these names. I don't even know half of them anymore either, okay? Signaling is this immense process in the cell. This is just one set of, and there's like a half a dozen of these available online, okay? But they integrate information and let all these different modules work together, okay? Early days in 1999, when they had a small little network that they could look at, some researchers actually looked for emergent properties by modeling them in a computer. And these signal transductions allow a cell, for example, to extend the duration of a signal. Just You don't have to have the ligand there anymore, but its effects keep on going. You can have feedback loops, both positive and negative. So you can radiate out, but you can self-turn off as well. And it can define the threshold, because a cell doesn't really want to respond to just a little tickle all the time, right? If you just barely randomly set this thing off, I mean, wait a minute here, right? So it knows how to figure out, well, this was a real signal. And then it also knows when, it kicked, when its butt was kicked, okay? So that we don't want that either. They want to adjust those. And there's massive number of outputs that radiate out. So that's the complexity of a cell. And they gave you one paper to read, okay, where they actually think that complexity is the hallmark of biological systems and is in, in terms of building and systems engineering is related to the robustness of a cell. Yes, we get sick, but not as often as we should if you think about all the molecular processes of a cell. So robustness here means that because all these modules are positively and negatively regulating each other, talking back, self-regulating, that you minimize the noise that's created by having to deal with a bunch of stochastic reactions and random reactions that occur in the cell, okay? 
And in some ways, the canalization is the word that's being used. Think of it as these, these reactions force a canal to form, so all of the output sort of is directed towards where you want the cell wants the stuff to go. It's not, it doesn't create an actual thing, but the, the molecules are going that. So that you had a specific outcome, even though the initial conditions were much more uncertain, is the way. Okay, and so these are the emergent properties of the cell. Okay, and I, I found, I, and I was looking for, I, I read your, and I read a couple other things, and I said, well, isn't there some biologist out there that talks about emergence or something? And thankfully, I found a few, because I could understand those better, perfectly frank, okay? And I saw this, this one, emergent properties from organisms to ecosystems. I'm kind of lazy, I like looking at figures first. I saw this figure one, and I said, holy cow, that's just a cell. So of course I had to read the thing, and I was gratified that as I read this thing, one of the first line literally quoted, "All living organisms are bubbles." So I, okay, this is my paper. I, I got this set, okay. right? I mean, come on now, right? Okay, the membrane is enough to create this resistance barrier. By the way, he actually argues that this principle works for people and, and environment and trees because it doesn't have to be a physical membrane per se. It, it can be some non. Uh, specific barrier. It has to be a barrier of some sort, but it doesn't have to be physical. As long as there's filtering, you maintain its integrity, okay, and you can get protected from antagonists. So putting it back into a cell, I'll return to now a static model of these molecules, okay, to say, oh, and, and related to this, well, the membrane, right? We have to have this bubble forming, and that's the membrane. You have one cell going here, and think of it going outside of the screen and further. It's actually interacting with another cell on the bottom left-hand corner. The lipid properties, those amphipathic, actually are cohesive interactions on their own. We also have a, a cytoskeleton inside that's helping it, okay? And we have a spot weld, an adhesion or a focal adhesion between, in this case, two cells, but it could also be to the outside. Those are those cohesive factors. The membrane is full of proteins, and those proteins are all, many of them are transport proteins and channels that feed the cell and give it energy. And in fact, the cell uses this difference in the sodium concentration to help drive food, that is amino acids, nucleotides, sugars, into the cell so that it can live. Okay, so I, I, I think really this picture says it all, that at least with this guy's model, we've got a bubble that meets all of the criteria and therefore the cell is emergent. I then look for another couple of examples and, and definitions of emergent properties. And, and Michael Grotecoit, who's probably quoting Goldstein, they, they say in the footnotes, okay, the one that I like, that conceptually makes sense to me when I'm thinking about a cell, is emergence is the arising of novel and coherent structures, patterns, and properties during the process of self-organization in complex systems. So that's what I've been trying to show you all along. A whole bunch of stuff interacting together and they self-organize into this cell. Dealing with downward causation, when I read from the biology literature, the one I like is to think about the higher level, the cell, okay, constraining the lower level, okay? And, 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 and forcing the lower level to do things that the cell itself needs. And so I actually like it in the positive, that the lower level conforms its activity to what the cell needs, okay? And this is very much a part of, um, actually, I, I mean, 
Remember how even when I talk, right? I talk, this is the cytoskeleton, this is the mitochondria, the powerhouse of cells. So even our naming of these structures are in fact related to the function of the emergent cell. So I think intuitively we're doing this even if we don't think of it as emergence, okay? And this higher level of principles give you to self-organization, or I tend to use self-regulation because that's what we see in development. Okay? The higher level should also have its own principles of operation. At the cell level, I'm not so, I think we're starting to try to think about that in terms of laws and principles of a cell. But when the cell gets merged together to form an organ, then physiology has already done all that work. All the rules of physiology, cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume, blood pressure stuff, okay? That's all physiology talking about the rules at that level of emergence, just that idea. To give you an example of self-regulation, um, I decided to, to focus on a very small part of what we look in in our, in our lab ourselves. okay, a long time ago, in fact, and not really try to give you a lesson on neural development because... I ain't got time for that, okay? So the Drosophila embryo, you see in the blue picture, the, um, the head is pointing up for you. The black is a stain we use to show the whole nerve cord, merging brain, and what they, the equivalent of the spinal cord, which we call a ventral cord because it's on the stomach side, not on the back side, okay? Close up, you can see that each segment has an A for an anterior commissure and a posture. You know your left side of the brain talks to your right side of the body and vice versa. That's true in flies as well. So 90% of axons have to cross the midline. The midline is the middle of this picture on this side. Okay. This ladder is actually formed because near the midline is a series of attractive and repulsive cues. Attractive is netrin, repulsive is robo, sorry, slit. Okay. And these axons, when they grow out, have to deal with this. Now, I'm, I'm keeping this quite simple because we now know there's a lot of molecules involved in this, but the principle is the same. If I cartoon a commercial axon, those axons that want to cross, 90% of them, okay, they're attracted to cross the midline by the netrins, the positive Q, but as soon as they cross, you don't want them to respond anymore to that plus. So they turn on the receptors that look at the negative, so they cross once, but not twice. And we need that if the left side is going to talk to the right side, okay? Motor neurons, actually, by the time they're formed at this stage, really just have to migrate. They have to push their axons out. All the muscles are to the left and the right of this figure. So they're going out there to talk to the muscles, right, so the thing can move. And they're pushed away from the midline by these signals. What became really useful for understanding this process is a set of interneurons. So these neurons stay on their own side, connect the different segments together with information. So they're not supposed to cross. But fortunately for us, they have a major propensity to cross if you mess around with the signaling of this repulsive cue. So we learned a lot about how this repulsive cue can work. So here's the development of this pathway. I gave it all, but, but lots of things have happened. So there's two neurons here that you're seeing here in this one, two sister neur neurons, okay? They came from the same mother. One wants to project anterior, one wants to project posterior. So somehow in that last division, they inherited information that says go this way, and they go, looking at the environment, seeking it out. They meet up with each other, they overlap with each other, then they finish the segments, and they finish a whole single line of axons on each side of the midline, very close to the midline, but not across the midline. 
those few axons that you're seeing, a trace of crossing over over here, for example, are actually a commercial axon that is, is, happens to be stained this time. The way we looked at this one is this, this stage 14 axons, if we wait till stage 16 and use a different antibody, this track right here, the midline is in the middle, this one here is all of those axons and a whole bunch of other ones that have now joined this track and none of them cross the midline. There is no staining across the midline. But these growth cones that are being used here to look at this environment. So think my, my body is a cell body, my arm is the axon going out, and the growth cone is my hand, and it's just searching the environment. And every time it sees the repulsive, it goes, yikes, get away from me, okay? And those motions and movements of this growth cone are the same as that blue cell used in that picture, just using only 10% of, of the whole neuron rather than the whole cell, okay? And ROBO, stands for roundabout, is the receptor for this slit. And so if you create a mutant embryo that does not have ROBO, then these middle ones are clearly crossing, and form crossing and recrossing, so they're like a roundabout. Okay, this was a Brit that discovered this, and the roundabouts in England apparently are much com more common than here, and so they call that. And we uh, discovered as working in our own lab is that if you modify the signal transduction pathway, so the receptor has to talk to the machinery, if you modify calmodulin signaling with Ka or something called SOS, we can essentially replicate this phenotype. So without any more details, this is what I mean by self-regulation. This growth cone all by itself, it doesn't actually need initially the, the, the nucleus, but later on it does, okay? It's processing this external information using receptors and immediately talking to the machinery that allows this growth cone to move. And that's because unlike cars, the growth cone takes the motor and moves it to the place where it wants to steer and turns it off other places. It's not one motor doing, you move the whole motor over so that it can move. And that's what you're regulating. And it's doing this every minute and second as it's migrating its way through this pathway. In this example, it's highlighting that if you have a repulsive cue, you dissociate the motor from the, from the machinery. The attractive cues help associate it, so we move in that direction. Okay, enough. What Noble, in his, in his, in his um, uh, book, Dance of the Tune, he likened this, so I'm trying to bring the physicists and stuff back in here too, and the mathematicians, to this differential equation type model, right? You know a heck of a lot more about this stuff than I do, okay? So this, this is the biologist's view of it, right? Okay, you've got the square in the middle, differential equation. But even I know, well, you need to set an initial condition. And usually to make it at least reasonably workable, we even heard hints of that yesterday, you've got to set some sort of boundary condition, right? And so these things go in there, and mathematicians do their stuff, hand-waving as far as I'm concerned, but stuff, okay? And out comes an output. And that output immediately is affecting the boundary conditions, certainly in a cell. And that output instantaneously, if you will, becomes the new initial condition, and on goes the process. So every second, a cell is kind of doing this. And that's why this living cell, its history, as well as its immediate present moment, are very important to how the cell actually works. And so we have to relate this to the central dogma and some of the questions that came out, okay, is when I was your age, central dogma was the thing. I went into molecular biology and cloned genes because I thought this was so cool. And then my physiology background took over and said, well, let's work on something else now, okay? But it is true that, that, that 
it is true that the DNA encodes all of the genes that we need to, and that are expressed in a cell. Okay? But, and, and that whatever those proteins that are expressed establishes the cell identity or phenotype, if you prefer that word. But, the, but, but you have to think about how the cell works now. And all these proteins that are in the cell are actually dictating how the DNA gets to utilize the information that's encoded into this DNA. Not only because it encodes the machinery, like the DNA polymerases, but also encodes information as to what's being transcribed. And so you notice how we use the same slide for that, but I found a different epigenetic slide for you here. This, one of the way the history of the cell is encoded in DNA while it's being packaged and stuff, because there's so much DNA, a neuron will pack up into suitcases, if you will, that are stuffed 10 times fuller than anything we could ever do, and just stuck them in the attic and say, forget it, I don't need them anymore until I divide again. And it rain, but, but, but a liver will do the neuron, pack up neuron genes and keep the liver genes. That's how cell identity occurs, okay? And these can be marked with these methyl groups on DNA residues or on the modifications of the histones that somebody brought up earlier, this memory of what was happening. So I look at this as a, a form of understanding the cell's memory. That then also includes the transcription factors. One could argue that the machinery like the RNA polymerase that sits on the DNA and makes the RNA, that could be considered a housekeeping gene because it's always there in all cells. But the cell regulates the expression of its genes in time and in space by a whole series of transcription factors that work in a combination with each other. And they work through something called the mediator, this nice big purple blob. Be thankful because there's hundreds of proteins in that blob, okay, that dictate when does the RNA polymerase actually get to transcribe a gene. And then there's actually controls on how often this RNA will be translated and stuff as well. So we now know that DNA makes RNA makes protein, but RNA is constantly talking back to DNA. These are all these non-coding ones that Jessica talked about. Certainly proteins are talking to DNA, and transcription factors can both turn on or off a gene. They sometimes do both, depending on the situation. And, 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 that, R, and that proteins are also regulating RNA. So going back into this more simple model of a cell, yes, the top arrow, what the DNA processes and allows to be expressed forms the identity of a cell. But it immediately has at least circular causation because the stuff in the cell is also telling the DNA what it can do and what it can't do. Okay? And then what's the other added factor that the cell has to deal with is, is all these external signals that it has that these signals are being processed by the stuff inside of the cell and talking back to the DNA and stuff again. And this is why it's so emergent, because this is the process of self-regulation that we're talking about, in, in my view. And, so, and I think what cell biology is now doing is what is called systems biology, trying to look at more of these components, this complexity of these components. Okay. One simple example, proteinomics means look at the proteins that are expressed in a cell. So find your favorite cell, mush it all up, extract all the proteins, cut them all up, fractionate them a bit just so the machine can process them, send them through this machine. <clears throat> That's how much I know about the machine, okay? <laughs> right, and then it comes up with these peptide sequences. It can give a very specific mass, and because it knows the mass of amino acids, it can tell you that this peptide had the following sequence, 
okay? And then because the genomes have been sequenced, you can go back to the, oh, that's the following 1,753 different proteins that were expressed in this cell, okay? And they come up with all sorts of um, graphics, statistics, stuff that many of you guys would like more than I. And this is the advent of omics. It started with the genome project when I was about your, well, a little bit older than you guys probably, that they started, let's sequence the whole human genome. They thought that that would be God's gift to the world and disease and health. And they realized, oh, we really don't know a whole lot more <laughs> because it's the regulation that's important. So they have transcriptomes. Let's look at, okay, let's look at the RNA that's present in the cell. Let's look at the proteins that we did. And now they even have metabolomics. So Jessica showed the importance of all of these metabolic pathways. And you can trace the metabolism by looking at the frequency of the different molecules that are present, okay? This is a very, very challenging, very interesting, but very challenging. It's high throughput. It requires immense amount of information processing and all sorts of new statistical analysis and methodologies have been created through all of this analysis. And so that's good. But I think the challenge lies in understanding what this data is telling you. When I started my lab, if you put in a grant, they were worried, would you ever get any data? Here the issue is, no, you'll always get data. But what does it mean is the question. And I think we're right on the advent. I think there are some labs that are beginning to say, let's not just do a postage stamp collection. Not, let's not just list the 17,000 different things. Let's start trying to use this to come up with fundamental principles of this emergent cell. Finally, and so this was related. I got only a couple minutes left. I'm nixing the central dogma because the cell, this round circle, is this highly interactive process, okay, of looking at environment. So DNA gets to phenotype through the whole cell and as the cell responds to the environment. But this gave uh, Dennis Noble, who I got this, an idea of biological relativity. And I, even if I have to go over a bit, I, I will because I want to throw this back out at the philosophers here. Okay? And that is, I'll just go to the blue coat. Because, well, he says cell's basic unit, yes. And, and to understand the why, you have to sometimes go to a different level. Okay? So it is an important consequence of biological relativity that we should ascribe functions and purpose to the level at which it makes sense, which is then the level at which they constrain the interactions of the system at the lower levels. Okay? This constraint is also what canalizes, you know, directs those interactions to serve the natural purposiveness of the organism. Okay? And so back down to the second last, the why may need to be examined at the next level. When we have why does a cell do all this stuff, you may need to go to the organ or something. This led me to modify my diagram of these modules within the cell that I used to give you the basic bottom to a series of concentric circles. I put the atoms and the molecules back, although I barely pay any attention to those, okay? But we have the macromolecules, the molecular machines, the organelles, and the cells. And by doing it this way and keeping it clean, I'm gonna put it back on this spectrum and basically say going from atoms to the cell on the left side of this slide is really this series of concentric that I often wonder are if they're emergent all on their own as well. And then, if we just start now from the cell, I can also create a series of emergent circles getting us from tissue to organ to organ systems and organisms. So the higher levels are constraining the lower in this series of things. 
is how I kind of view how the cell is working. Okay? That means then, if we bring in public medicine, sociology, environmental science, I, I started with cell because there's way too many circles otherwise, okay. I, I actually think, does that mean that we should actually be thinking about family and society if we're thinking about how our, our organism, us, our personhood is affected by these things, okay. Noble also wants to include the ecosystem and the world. He actually also included the universe. Okay, um, a world I can kind of get in today's world, if you will. A universe I don't know anything about, so I went back with it. Okay, so it, because remember, he's saying the why things exist is, is, is you have to understand the why of an organism by going up the chain, if you will. Okay, and he presented this work to a bunch of his colleagues at University College of London. And Noble is, is an emeritus status, very famous physiologist, cardiac function and stuff. Over the last 15 years, he's the one that's been fighting the theory of physiology versus evolution, and he started from that uh, point of view. Um, he was he presented to these people, and he was very depressed over the response that his biological colleagues gave him. And he talked to a colleague, and he writes this in the books. I thought it was cute, because when I was reading this, is this guy really going to go to God finally? Really? Actually? Really? No. <laughs> because... His colleague says, well, I would have agreed with you more, but what you are arguing would let God back in. And so Noble then hand waves and does other stuff, something about creative purposiveness and stuff, and then finally ended by saying what's more important is if you see a guy stab with a knife, let's fix the guy and, and, and not worry about why the knife. And I'll have you to ask what do you think, and I'm finished. <laughs> Thank you so much for your talk. Um, so both you and Dr. Brown discussed epigenetic modifications as a part of a cell, features of the cell. Would you consider that a part of its complexity or an emergent property, since at least from how I think about it, it definitely has some mechanisms of downward causation? Oh yeah. I, I um so number one, I have no philosophy or I had it probably before you were born. Okay, so it's it's in and out and long gone. But I actually think, actually, even a macromolecule, if I take the chemistry, even just making a strand of DNA with those properties, I think, and certainly it's a kind of an emergent, where I think the argument is, is it emergent or is it just fine-tuning a mechanism? Okay, I'm not, I, mean, I don't know how to answer, right? I, I can agree that it could be that. It certainly is a fine-tuning of a very important mechanism. And it's, in my view, massively important to becoming a cell in this time and in this space exactly, okay? So when the definition splits, I, I was thinking all along, look, a ribosome has an emergent property. As far as I'm concerned, when calmodulin binds calcium in a target, that's an emergent property. But I began to suspect I was using it a little bit too loosely and just think of it as a mechanism. But the philosophers would probably have a better answer. Thank you very much for the talk. Uh, whenever you arrive at systems of, of circular causality, the first question that comes to mind is what came first, the chicken or the egg? And I'll leave that to you, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I'm wondering, how does this notion of biological relativity, I know there's some articles that you sent out that, that briefly touched this, but how does this affect the notion of, of evolutionary development um, and, and evolution in general? Because if, if, if systems have to, are so intimately interconnected, and, and it seems like interdependent as well, intradependent to some degree, um, 
what do we what do we know about their their development and their emergence in the sense of biological history, evolutionary history? Yeah, I thought that was good. So I think some of it is just the conception of evolution itself, right? What what Nobel was trying he as a physiologist, right, in the advent of evolution, DNA the world of DNA centric, everything is DNA, physiologists were left behind a little bit. I'll confess, I have a physiology background, so I, I resonate with what Nobel is thinking. He says, well, wait a minute. We know enough now to know that just because the DNA expressed this gene and this gene, yes, might be important for this phenotype, it's not a linear pathway. It's this ball of all the, the ultimate phenotype, is being, which is what natural selection is fighting, right? If the DNA can make this thing. Natural selection is actually selecting on the organism's physiology. Okay, and if the whole physiology is related to this round ball of a cell, the natural selection is affecting this whole round ball of things. Okay, and so we have that issue, and you have so you have to remember that, and, and these traits are not automatic, right? You get a you have this slow transition you carry, it it its its frequency in the population grows, and that's how you end up with this, and eventually, if they separate, especially on the little islands. They can differentiate far enough from their original parents that they no longer can mate and are considered separate species. But selection is, has always been known to be on the reproductive power of that organism. Like the male peacock is a classic example, right? This big, huge tail, very beautiful, okay? From the survival of that male, he's a dead duck. Well, I guess a dead bird, okay? Right? Because he can barely fly anymore. He should be easily eaten. Maybe he's not tasty, I have no idea, okay? But that phenomena stays in the species because the male with the better tail is the one that gets the mate. And so the reproductive tract only knows about the fancy tail, if you will. And that then, my opinion is, is arising through all of this physiology that's being selected on, okay? Is that enough or, okay? I really love that talk. And um, I've actually never seen a biologist admit that there was circular causality in, in uh, DNA to DNA through, through the cell. So this is really interesting to me because um, there's a theoretical biologist named Robert Rosen who was kind of, some people in systems biology might think of him as kind of a pioneer in systems biology. Um, and his, his contention was that we need to have, if we're going to have any kind of dynamical description of the cell, um, some kind of circularity or self-reference. And so what I was wondering though is um, if there are any good references for um, this circular causality in the cell, in the literature, because it's kind of like, I don't know, is it kind of folk wisdom or is it, is it a good place where people actually really try to grapple with that? It actually might be a little bit worse than folk uh, because, because I just threw that term out because to me this, this is circular. And I, I know that Noble and a couple of other papers, that there's so many that I've read in the last two months that I'm like, okay, they've all merged into a mess, okay? But, but I, I, that in fact, I think in Noble's context, he was, it, there's an argument as to whether it's emergence or just emergence as in the higher organism has forcing the lower or is it just circular causation? And that's why I 
don't remember what I said today anymore, but, but hopefully I said that it at a minimum is a circular causation, but I actually think it's how the cell becomes an emergent property. But I think if you go to his, he did quote some people. Unfortunately, it may not be in the PDF that I sent. I'm not even sure if this one, I sent it to you late. I don't know if that got to the students. But I realized uh, a couple of days later that, oh, you would not have gotten any of the references because it's one of these books where all the references are in appendix. But, it, but, but if you email me, I can find it for you. Yes, maybe this is a little bit off topic, but uh, since you were mentioning your research in uh, neurobiology, uh, I was I'm wondering, um, you know, psychologists have this notion of neuroplasticity and somehow we can sort of rewire neural pathways. So I was thinking about you know, your axons, reconnecting all that. Yeah. Maybe that's informed for understanding things like learning or maybe the treatment of like mental health issues like depression or addiction or habit formation, stuff like that. So is there any biological basis to that concept or is it just something that's more like pure psychology? Oh, no. Um, um, even, even when I joined Corey Goodman's lab to begin work on flies, right? My, my thesis was just test two, basically biochemistry. Um, the concept of developmental neurobiology, the processes that we're learning about, this growth cone movement and changes in shape by the actin, this growth cone becomes the presynaptic terminal. So the, the, when you form a synapse, it's the neuron side talking to the muscle, if you will, or the endocrine cell. And during memory and learning, you can often change the shape of that presynaptic learning. You can even make more synapses to reinforce. Adolescence is now considered up to about age of 25. So I think some of you might be adolescents still, but not behavioral-wise, I have to say. Um, so, so, so that, and that's actually, they've seen a lot more of this in the last two years with COVID, because during adolescence, think about all this time of development, you're mostly just making an absolute crap load of these connections, right? You, you see this in kids, right? They seem to be sponges, just why, 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 you sort it all. And then during adolescence, teen years, adolescence, your brain is now having to get rid of some, sculpturing the ones you use, getting rid of the ones that you don't know. And so this is always happening. And of course, that's psychology as well. Okay. And so in fact, they're actually seeing it in kids that are just playing games is they're so focused on only a few skill sets, the rest of their brain goes crazy. So it's a total continuum. Even aging is considered a, a continuum. Um, so I have a question. Uh, kind of just... just just clarification, uh, clarificatory question about so the the, the 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 horrible things you were doing to fly embryos. Um, how, so that, that that fly embryo picture, how many at that stage, how many like roughly how many cells were there? I can kind of tell that there were pieces and parts, but it's hard to see. Whether oh, that's a whole embryo. That's hundreds of thousands of cells. Okay, so yeah, right yeah, that's that, that picture was. So that picture was the whole embryo just taken, so I can get it at a low mag. When we took the spinal cord picture, we actually dissect out the spinal cord, but there's still thousands and thousands of cells. So, like, so when you, so you know, if you had, you know, so thinking about it as a ladder, like, yeah, you know, at points it looks like there might just be one thing, but that's actually like hundreds of cells or, or hundreds. Or, so the ladder, the stuff that was staying in brown, are actually axon tracks. So they're the axons of minimally dozens, about a hundred at that stage of cells. Okay, some are going out, some are going in. There's, so what you're missing in that picture, because it's not fluorescence, is there's a, the third dimension, right? The Z axis. There's a depth, and we're, you're not seeing that. Thank you. Uh, the philosopher William Lycan talks about uh, two levels of explanation, mechanistic and teleological. Um, and when you were talking about the cell, I, I definitely 
I felt you have to resort to a teleological explanation to explain what's going on. You just you can't resort to pure mechanism, even though right. the mechanism's going on. Would you say the cell is the lowest level at which the mechanistic explanation just becomes uh, in, unworkable, or are there lower levels in which we have to resort to teleology as well? So there's a personal opinion now, right? Okay. So good. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I actually think from a biology point of view, yes, the cell is the last one. It is the first one that we want to start dealing with and theology, emergent, that kind of stuff. Um, because from the biology point of view, it's the basic unit of life. And we really do actually think that's true, even though it was said several hundred years ago, okay, type thing. And so I, I think it's that. I think... But, on, and, but if, if you're kind of like the physicist in this, if I understand this condensed matter, right, you, you, you have to still understand the parts of the cell a little bit. And I would argue that the fact that you, you, you can say these mechanisms that I have, right, I guess you would call those secondary things, right? So, right? But we had to understand that. We had to spend years identifying those things so that we can go from, well, it's just a cell and it kind of does, to a... This is how the cell actually does this kind of stuff, okay? Like, I always say that a cancer cell, right? None of us want cancer. Least of all, you should go and get an evaluation if you're, psychiatric evaluation if you want it, okay? So, but from the cell, the cancer cell's point of view, that poor cell is simply doing what its history and what its messaging systems are telling it to do. We just don't like what it's doing. So that's why I think when you stay with a cell and think disease and physiology, then you can start, oh, okay. And people who look at diseases have been going to these this, this, uh, proteomic and transcriptome processes looking for what genes have changed, and they're trying to establish percentages of effect. And the problem is the network of these interactions is so complex that... Yes, maybe you can account for 10 or 15% of the disease with the molecules that would make sense. Like if you have an energy issue, the energy ones, right? But 80% of it is all these other ones because everything is so tied close. So yes, I think the cell is the starting part. And I think that's what I was trying to show in this circle. Because from a, from a personal faith point of view, since Jessica did such a wonderful job of bringing that in, when I was your age, I wasn't going to church anymore. Okay, and then I married someone who helped me get back to it. Okay, and but I always had faith in God. I just didn't like the religion stuff, being told what to do. I still don't really like being told what to do, but <laughs> but I, okay, but I can live with it more better now. Okay, so I think the beauty of the cell and the way these things work, and there's a purpose behind all of this. Set so it's just too way too bloody cool to be chance and crap. There's got to be something there. So maybe that also forces me to, because my physiology training is at a cellular level. Okay. Thanks for the talk. Um, I have a question about this redundancy and backups of signaling pathways. So we have to always find something that's causal. When you knock out something, you have to see the phenotype. Right. But by doing so, are we then arbitrarily choosing things that either have no backup pathway to, to, to rescue it? or something that is a major transcription factor, for example, that impacts a gazillion other things. But you pointed to, oh, it sucks too. Or, you know, right. so, so you're a physiologist, right? You, you think of networks and complex systems, right. but then we, our experiments are kind of reductionistic. You, you have to pick a single factor to experiment with. How do you struggle with that? 
So actually, the experiments, experiments make you struggle. In the old days, you did tend to pick your, because the easiest genes, the ones that are so impactful, were also some of the easier ones to first isolate. You wipe them out, the thing is that, right? But actually, if you, they, they can wipe out in a yeast organism, they have a knockout for every gene in the yeast. And very few of them are completely required genes. Okay, so I, I don't remember the percent, but very few, like 10, 15%, but not 80%. And so we're actually, I actually think that I'll, I'll just flip yours. It's that we actually really thought that insulin goes to its receptor, goes to this and does this, but we now know it's involved in aging, it's involved in all these other processes because of the interrelatedness of these. So that in fact, I think that real cell biology and physiology is now looking, I mean, I don't think I've ever used emergence until he did, but we're looking at these higher biological system aspects because we're realizing uh, we can play around with an awful lot of genes. I mean, the most frustrating one that my lab ever worked on is Abelson tyrosine kinase, an absolutely famous kinase for leukemia and stuff. And it's a kinase, it's supposed to phosphorylate things, right? So we think where our, our baseline control was, well, let's make a mutant where it's not kinase active anymore. Surely that will kill off the thing. And the fly doesn't give a rip. <laughs> you know, and so they were like, okay. And, and, and my last student's paper had about 35 or so mutants because none of those mutants were so simple to understand. So it's definitely complex. So it's being dealt with in, even on the experiment just by the results. Um, let me ask one last question uh, um, about, um, so you talked about so the, the cell being the building block of life. Um, and so in a certain sense, right, you know, like if you took a red blood cell out of me and sort of left it alone, um, one, would that survive on its own? And what conditions would you need to keep it alive? And two, is there anything in the cell? Like, so if you took like the Golgi apparatus or the nucleus or any, any of the organelles, and I don't even know if this is possible, uh, like pulled it out and put it in the right situation, would it, would it survive on its own? Or is it so interconnected that if you don't have all the other, like, the, the literal scaffolding around that it, that it wouldn't work? So, I mean, I know you can take a nucleus and take it out of one cell and put it into another cell, but I don't think that's quite, I think you're really meaning put it into a Petri dish or a test tube or something and have it live. Yeah, and you know, you know like, you have some control over what you put it into, but not another cell, just like on its own. Right. And it survived yeah. on its own or, or in what sense might it be able to survive, how long, in what way? For very short periods of time, something like a nucleus can be taken out and they can do some very specific biochemistry assays, but we're talking about getting the student up at six in the morning so they have the eight hours of work in the day to, and by the next night it's, 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 it's dead, okay? I know, um, you know, even if you crush up the membrane, they'll form a self-sealed vesicle that you can keep around for a little while in a test tube and you can even do some transport assays but no, it doesn't really, I don't think it, in my mind, it, it's kind of like COVID is not really a cell and alive. It needs to infect a cell to take over and become, and I, I think once you start fractionating the cell, you have the same issue. All right, well, um, let's, uh, let's stop there. Uh, and and let's take time to thank Dr. Pepper for his time.